Chapter 14 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 2, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 14. The Baltimore Nominations. Though the compact voting body of the South had retired from the Charleston Convention, her animating spirit yet remained in the numbers and determination of the anti-Douglas debates. When on Tuesday morning, May 1st, the eighth day, the convention once more met, the Douglas men, with a view to making the most of the dilemma, resolved to force the nomination of their favorite. But there was a lion in the path. Usage and tradition had consecrated the two-thirds rule. Charles E. Stewart of Michigan tried vainly to obtain the liberal interpretation that this meant two-thirds of the votes given. But Chairman Cushing ruled remorselessly against him, and at the instant of John B. Howard of Tennessee, the convention voted, 141 to 112, that no person should be declared nominated who did not receive two-thirds of all the votes the full convention was entitled to cast. This sealed the fate of Douglas. The Electoral College numbered 303. 202 votes, therefore, were necessary to a choice. Voting for candidates was begun and continued throughout all the next day, Wednesday, May 2nd. Fifty-seven ballots were taken in all. Douglas received 145 and a half on the first, and on several subsequent ballots, his strength rose to 152 and a half. The other votes were scattered among eight different candidates with no near approach to agreement. The deadlock having become unmistakable and irremediable, and the nomination of Douglas under existing conditions impossible, all parties finally consented to an adjournment, especially as it was evident that unless this were done, the sessions would come to an end by mere disintegration. Therefore, on the tenth day, May 3rd, the Charleston Convention formally adjourned, having previously resolved to reassemble on the 18th of June in the city of Baltimore, with a recommendation that the several states make provision to fill the vacancies in their delegations. Mr. Yancey and his seceders had meanwhile organized another convention in St. Andrew's Hall. Their business was, of course, to report substantially the platform rejected by the Douglas men, and for the rejection of which they had retired. Mr. Yancey then explained to them that the adoption of this platform was all the action they proposed to take until the rump democracy should make their nomination, when, he said, it may be our privilege to endorse the nominee or our duty to proceed to make a nomination. Other seceders were more impatient and desired that something be done forthwith. But as the sessions were continued to the second and third day, their overflowing zeal found a safety valve in their speeches. Mr. Yancey's program prevailed, and they also adjourned to meet again in Richmond on the 11th of June. At the time of the disruption, rumors were current in Charleston that the movement, if not prompted, 
was at least encouraged and sustained by telegrams from leading senators and representatives then at their congressional duties in Washington. As the day for reassembling in Baltimore drew near, the main fact was abundantly proved by the publication of an address signed by Jefferson Davis, Toombs, Iverson, Slidell, Benjamin, Mason, and some 14 others in which they undertook to point out a path to union and harmony in the Democratic Party. They recited the withdrawal of eight states at Charleston and endorsed the step without qualification. We cannot refrain, said the address, from expressing our admiration and approval of this lofty manifestation of adherence to principle, rising superior to all considerations of expediency, to all trammels of party, and looking with an eye single to the defense of the constitutional rights of the states. They then alleged that the other Democratic states remained in the convention only to make a further effort to secure some satisfactory recognition of sound principles, declaring, however, their determination also to withdraw if their just expectation should be disappointed. The address then urged that the seceders should defer their meeting at Richmond, but that they should come to Baltimore and endeavor to effect a reconciliation of differences on a basis of principle. If the Baltimore Convention should adopt a satisfactory platform of principles, and their votes might help secure it, then cause of dissension would have ceased. On the other hand, continued the address, if the Convention on Reassembling at Baltimore shall disappoint the just expectations of the remaining Democratic states, their delegations cannot fail to withdraw and unite with the eight states which have adjourned to Richmond. The address in another paragraph explained that the 17 Democratic states which had voted at Charleston for the seceders' platform, united with Pennsylvania alone, comprise a majority of the entire electoral vote of the United States able to elect the Democratic nominees against the combined opposition of all the remaining states. This was a shrewd and crafty appeal. Under an apparent plea for harmony lurked an insidious invitation to Delaware, Virginia, North Carolina, Missouri, Tennessee, Kentucky, California, Oregon, and Pennsylvania to join the seceders, reconstruct the Democratic Party, cut off all the popular sovereignty recusants, and secure perpetual ascendancy in national politics through the consolidated South. The signers of this address forgetting their own constant accusation of sectionalism against the Republicans, pretended to see no impropriety in proposing this purely selfish and sectional alliance. If it succeeded, their triumph in the Union was irresistible and permanent. If it failed, it served to unite the South for secession and a slave confederacy. If any Democrat harbored a doubt that the proposed reconciliation meant simply a reunion on the Davis-Yancey platform, the doubt was soon removed. In the Senate of the United States, Jefferson Davis was pressing to a vote his caucus resolutions, submitted in February to serve as a model for the Charleston platform, and this brought on a final discussion between himself and Douglas. Davis had begun the debate on the 7th of May by a savage onslaught 
on squatter sovereignty. A fallacy, he said, fraught with mischief more deadly than the fatal upas, because it spread its poison over the whole Union. Douglas took up the gauntlet, and, replying on May 15th and 16th, said he could not recognize the right of a caucus of the Senate or the House to prescribe new tests for the Democratic Party. Senators were not chosen for the purpose of making platforms. That was the duty of the Charleston Convention, and it had decided in his favor, platform organization, and least of all the individual, by giving him a majority of 50 votes over all the other candidates combined. He reprobated the ANSI movement as leading to dissolution and a Southern Confederacy. The party rejected this caucus platform. Should the majority, he asked, surrender to the minority. Davis, replying on the 17th, contended that Douglas had, on the Kansas policy of the administration, put himself outside the Democratic organization. He desired no divided flag for the party. He preferred that the senator's banner should lie in its silken folds to feed the moth. But if it impatiently rustles to be unfurled in opposition to ours, we will plant our own on every hill. Douglas retorted and again attacked the caucus dictation. Why, he asked, are all the great measures for the public good made to give place to the emergency of passing some abstract resolutions on the subject of politics to reverse the democratic platform under the supposition that the representatives of the people are men of weak nerve who are going to be frightened by the thunders of the Senate chamber? Davis rejoined, that they wanted a new article in the creed because they could not get an honest construction of the platform as it stood. If you have been beaten on a rickety, double-constructed platform, kick it to pieces and lay one broad and strong on which men can stand. We want nothing more than a simple declaration that Negro slaves are property, and we want the recognition of the obligation of the federal government to protect that property like all other. A somewhat restrained undertone of personal temper had been running through the debate, and Jefferson Davis could not resist an expression of contempt for his opponent. The fact is, said he, I have a declining respect for platforms. I would sooner have an honest man on any sort of a rickety platform that you could construct than to have a man I did not trust on the best platform which could be made. Douglas promptly called attention to the inconsistency of Davis's method of forcing his resolutions with one breath and avowing his indifference to a platform with another, especially as Yancey and his own followers had seceded on the platform and not on the man. But he did not press his adversary to the wall, as he might have done, on the insincerity which Davis's sneer exposed. He was hampered by his own attitude as a candidate. Douglas, who had received 150 votes at Charleston and who expected the whole of at Baltimore, could not let his tongue wag as freely as Davis, who had received only one vote and a half at Charleston and could count on none at Baltimore. Else he might have denounced him on the score of patriotism. For Jefferson Davis, like Yancey, only not so constantly and like so many others of that secession coterie, blew hot and cold about disunion as occasion demanded. The same debate of May 17 furnished an instructive example. 
In the beginning of the day's discussion, Davis indulged in a repetition of the old alarm cry. And so, sir, when we declare our tenacious adherence to the Union, it is the Union of the Constitution. If the compact between the states is to be trampled into the dust, if anarchy is to be substituted for the usurpation which threatened the government at an earlier period, if the Union is to become powerless for the purposes for which it was established, and we are vainly to appeal to it for protection, then, sir, conscious of the rectitude of our course and self-reliant within ourselves, we look beyond the confines of the Union for the maintenance of our rights. But after Douglas had made a damaging exposure of Yancey's disunion intrigues, which had come to light, and had charged their animus on the Charleston seceders, Davis changed his tone. He said there were not more than 75 men in the lodge of the Southern Leagues. He did not think the Union was in danger from them. I have great confidence, said he, in the strength of the Union. Every now and then I hear that it is about to tumble to pieces, that somebody is going to introduce a new plank into the platform, and if he does, the Union must tumble down until at last I begin to think it is such a rickety old platform that it is impossible to prop it up. But then I bring my own judgment to bear, instead of relying on witnesses, and I come to the conclusion that the Union is strong and safe, strong in its power, as well as in the affections of the people. The debate made it very plain that it was not reconciliation, but domination which the South wanted. So in due time, May 25th, the Jefferson Davis resolutions affirming the property theory and the protection doctrine were passed by a large majority of the Democratic senators. When the Charleston Convention proper reassembled at Baltimore, it was seen that the program laid out by Jefferson Davis and others in their published address had been adopted. The seceders had met at Richmond taken a recess, and now appeared at Baltimore making application for readmission. But some of the states that withdrew at Charleston had sent contesting delegations, and it resolved itself into tangled rivalry and quarrel of platforms, candidates, and delegations all combined. For four days, a furious debate raged in the convention during the day, while rival mass meetings in the streets at night called each other disorganizers, bolters, traitors, disunionists, and abolitionists. When Douglas, before a test vote was reached, sent a dispatch suggesting that the party and the country might be saved by dropping his name and uniting upon some other candidate, his followers suppressed the dispatch. On the fifth day at Baltimore, the Democratic National Convention underwent its second crisis and suffered its second disruption. This time, the secession was somewhat broadened. Chairman Cushing resigned his seat, and Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and California withdrew wholly or in part to join the states which had gone out at Charleston. For the time, the disunion extremists were keeping their scheme too well masked for us to establish clearly its historical record. But the signs and footprints of their under-plot are evident. Here at Baltimore, as at Charleston, and as on every critical occasion, Mr. Yancey 
was conspicuously present. Here, as elsewhere, he was no doubt persistently intriguing for disunion in secret while ostentatiously denying disunion purposes in public. But little remained to do after the disruption at Baltimore, and that little was quickly done. The fragments of the original convention continued their session in the Front Street Theater, where they had met, and on the first ballot nominated Stephen A. Douglas for president by an almost unanimous vote. The seceders organized under the chairmanship of Caleb Cushing in Maryland Institute Hall, and also by a nearly unanimous ballot nominated as their candidate for president, John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky. Then Mr. Yancey, who in a street mass meeting had declared that he was neither for the Union per se, nor for disunion per se, but for the Constitution, announced that the democracy, the Constitution, and through them, the were yet safe. A month prior to the reassembling of the Charleston rumps above described, Baltimore had already witnessed another presidential convention and nomination, calling itself peculiarly national, in contradistinction to the sectional character which it charged upon the Democratic and Republican parties alike. This was a third party, made up mainly of former Whigs whose long-cherished party antagonisms kept them aloof from the Democrats in the South and the Republicans in the North. In the South, they had been men whose moderate anti-slavery feelings were outraged by the repeal of the Missouri Compromise and the Lecompton Trick. In the North, they were those whose traditions and affiliations revolted at the extreme utterances of avowed abolitionists. In both regions, many of them had embraced no-nothingism more as an alternative than from original choice. The Whig party was dissolved. No-nothingism had utterly failed. Their only resource was to form a new party. In the various states they had, since the defeat of Fillmore in 1856, held together a minority organization under names differing in separate localities. All these various factions and fragments sent delegations to Baltimore, where they united themselves under the designation of the Constitutional Union Party. They proposed to take a middle course between Democrats and Republicans, and to allay sectional strife by ignoring the slavery question. Delegates of this party, regular and irregular, from some 22 states, convened at Baltimore on the 9th of May. John J. Crittenden of Kentucky called the meeting to order, and Washington Hunt of New York was made temporary and permanent chairman. On Thursday, May 10th, they adopted as their platform a resolution declaring in substance that they would recognize no other political principle than the constitution of the country, the union of the states, and the enforcement of the laws. They had no reasonable hope of direct success at the polls in November, but they had a clear possibility of defeating a popular choice and throwing the election into the House of Representatives. And in that case, their nominee might stand on high vantage ground as a compromise candidate. This possibility gave some zest to the rivalry among their several aspirants. On their second ballot, 
a slight preponderance of votes indicated John Bell of Tennessee as the favorite, and the convention made his nomination unanimous. Mr. Bell had many qualities desirable in a candidate for president. He was a statesman of ripe experience and of fair, if not brilliant, fame. Though from the South, his course on the slavery question had been so moderate as to make him reasonably acceptable to the North on his mere personal record, he had opposed the repeal of the Missouri Compromise and the Lecompton Outrage. But upon this platform of ignoring the political strife of six consecutive years, in which he had himself taken such vigorous part, he and his followers were, of course, but as grain between the upper and nether millstones, Edward Everett, one of the most eminent statesmen and scholars of New England, was nominated for vice president. This party becomes historic, not through what it accomplished, but by reason of what a portion of it failed to perform. Within one year from these pledges to the Constitution, the Union, and the enforcement of the laws, Mr. Bell and most of his Southern adherents in the seceding states were banded with others in open rebellion. On the other hand, Mr. Everett and most of the Northern members, together with many noble exceptions in the border slave states, like Mr. Crittenden of Kentucky, kept the faith announced in their platform, and with patriotic devotion supported the government in the war to maintain the Union. End of chapter 14 Read by Sheila Blunt